Hey everybody, welcome back to Noggin Notes. Thank you, listening audience, for downloading our content. We sure do appreciate it. If you like this, as always, please share it with your friends because we're trying to make Earth better and the way that we do that is by sharing. Sharing is caring. Today's interview is with Kevin Yant, and I made the uh, mistake of mispronouncing his name in the opening, so you get a good chuckle out of that. But Kevin has an interesting story about leaving an abusive church, and we talk at great length about all sorts of cluster B personality disorders, but uh, specifically narcissistic personality disorder and how it manifests in church leadership and how clergy can sometimes succumb to evil itself often without even knowing it. And then how do we set good boundaries and leave organizations, not just churches, but all organizations that exhibit these types of personality characteristics that are not useful and are in many cases maladaptive or unhealthy how do we set those boundaries? How do we leave? How do we become more healthy as we go through life? And then ultimately, how do we heal from this stuff and then avoid repeating the same pattern? So I think you'll find that this has a lot of application to interpersonal relationships as well as organizational relationships. And we get some book recommendations from Kevin and, um, and we talk about some, some other stuff too. It's, it was a, it was a good interview and I'm, I'm glad that we made the connection. I look forward to chatting with him throughout the coming weeks, months, and years. Cause I think, I think I made a good friend out of this. So I also want to give credit to uh, TC Pearson who showed, uh, made an appearance on our show a while back when we were talking about abusive relationships. Uh, so credit to, to Todd or TC as his nickname and for hooking us up, me and Kevin. So Thanks, Todd. I appreciate you. And as always, we thank our Zephyr Wellness family here, which is the company that I own here in Northern Nevada, uh, where I get my salary generated by my employees, for whom I am eternally grateful for their support and their continued commitment to allowing me to do things like podcasts, because not everybody gets to do this in the clinical world. Usually we're slugging it out with our 30 to 35 patient hours a week and that's a, that's a pretty heavy task and to be able to go out and do things like this in the community and promote and provide more resources for people to just listen as they see fit passively, you know, in their cars, their homes, or in bed as they're drifting off to sleep or wherever you may be hearing my voice. I sure am appreciative of my employees here and I never forget that that's a really special honor and a privilege and I don't take it lightly that I get to do these kinds of things. So that in conjunction with my work with Walk the Talk America is very, very special to me. And if you don't know about Walk the Talk America, please check out WTTA.org. And if you want to get a free and anonymous mental health screening, you can do so there. There's, uh, I think, 16 of them now. Uh, a couple of them are in Spanish. And uh, we also invite you to share that around as you see fit as well. Because when everybody's in tune with what their mental functioning is like, you get to be in better control of your responses to environment. So that all being said, I'm proud and pleased to introduce you to my now friend, Kevin Yant. Enjoy. Welcome back, listening audience, to yet another Noggin Notes podcast. I'm your host, Jake Wiskirchen, and I am stoked to be doing this again. It's been a couple of months, and I've been busy, but uh, busy in a good way. If you're not familiar with the Walk the Talk America Guns and Mental Health podcast, I invite you to listen to that. You can hear my lovely voice over there. Uh, it's just called Guns and Mental Health, and it's available wherever podcasts are, and we talk about guns and mental health. But uh, if you're interested in that, please check it out. 
and uh, take a free and anonymous mental health screening if you'd like at wtta.org slash love. It's a great way to check in on yourself and do a nice little arm's length, non-threatening look at see into your, into your brain. So uh, thanks for downloading and uh, sharing around. If you do that, if you like this, please, uh, please tell others. But today I am joined by Kevin Jant from New Mexico. Hi, Kevin. Jake, thank you for having me. Dude, it's my pleasure. Uh, we connected through a mutual friend. Um, I have not actually embraced uh, Todd Pearson, TC, as he goes by on the interwebs, uh, but he has been on the show. I've been on his show. Uh, but like so many people we meet in the Twitter sphere or on the Instagram verse or wherever we uh, meet people, we become good friends. We text a lot, and I met you through him. And like none of us have—I I don't know—you guys have met, I think, in person. But I've never actually physically shook his hand. At some point, I'm sure I will. Um, I'm sure I'll shake your hand at some point too. But it's really cool how you know, for as much as we bag on the internet and social media rotting children's brains, and it is, uh, really good things can come from it, and this being one of them. So I'm happy to have you. You're going to tell your story about um, you know basically narcissistic abuse in a church environment. And I know that I am a Jesus follower, at least I try to be to the best of my human ability. And I know several other people who follow this work and listen to the show are also Christian-oriented. And yet still, many people I encounter professionally and personally have been hurt by the church. And it doesn't necessarily level up to the to the level of you know uh, gaslighting into psychosis, but, but it can. And... Um, and the point is that that's not what it's supposed to be about, right? It's not supposed to be about the dominance of, of mankind doing man's own thing to fulfill his own ego desires. It's supposed to be about a, a non-attached guide toward what God wants for you in your life. So, you know, if, if this conversation can inspire some hope in people to return to their spiritual anchoring, I think that'll help society. So that's my tee up, but I want you to introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are, what you do, um... Typically, I try to stay out of the way, so that's probably as much as I'm going to talk, you know, unprompted without my guest speaking. Uh, but go ahead, Kevin. Well, thanks, Jake. Uh, my my name is Kevin Yant. The J is pronounced like a Y. See, and this is what a good podcast that. host would know beforehand. But I'm not a good no, podcast host. Man, dude, it's uh, you're not the first, and you definitely won't be the last. So, uh, not even a big deal. I've been. Uh, coping with that my entire life. And the good news is I have four daughters and someday they have an opportunity to shed this name <laughs> and uh, get married to Jones or, or with you know, some, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So, um, but yes, my name is Kevin Yant. I'm 58 years old, grew up in uh, my first part of my life. I grew up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. My dad was a police officer. Uh, they moved to Iowa when I was in seventh grade. So I, I, I graduated from Bettendorf High School in Bettendorf, Iowa. Uh, moved out to Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, where I currently reside. Lived out here for seven years, got married, moved back to Iowa. Lived there for 28 years. Now we're, now we're back in New Mexico, basically to assist in my wife's uh, mother's care as she ages. Uh, so we've been here uh, now four and a half years, I guess. And uh, But part of the reason uh, of us getting here was to es 
to some degree, it was a side benefit of escaping a church that that you had mentioned. Um, but I but I also uh, and I can I can get into this a bit more. But just as kind of a side note, I, I I'm a seminary graduate of the Reformed Baptist Seminary. I'm also a current student at the Reformed Baptist Seminary. So I'm, I'm pursuing a, a secondary degree, Master of Arts in Systematic Theology. Um, I, I wanted to go to school so that I rightly made sure that I rightly understood uh, Christian doctrine, Christian living, uh, how to rightly interpret and to understand things. And and a lot of what we'll find is that these, um, and I'm going to lump them into kind of a general classification of authoritarian, spiritually abusive uh, churches, and I might use quotes around that about, around that word. Um, a friend of mine, I showed you his book a little earlier, it's called In the House of Friends. His name is Ken Garrett. He's a pastor in Portland. Um, in his book, In the House of Friends, he dubs these churches Christian cults. He said something to the effect, like if it does the things that a cult does, it acts like a cult, you know, like walks and talks like a duck. It's a duck, right? So ineffectually, they'll they'll cling to Christian doctrines, and yet they function like a cult. And so these are cults, uh, ultimately. Um, they just they've they've abandoned certain doctrines of the Christian faith in order to yield dominance and control over people is really kind of what it boils down to. And that's where this, uh, you know, if I have the terminology correct, the cluster B or narcissistic, narcissistic personalities come into play. And these people, these leaders, they find themselves in leadership positions and become, and they're narcissistic when they come in, I'm sure of that, but they just, now they're able to yield their control over people. So, um, I'm married for 32 years. I have four daughters of ages 24, 22, almost 12, and 10. Uh, so those things play into my story quite a bit. But um, I'm just going to say that's my brief background. And uh, there I am. So, you know, ask away, you know, questions from there. Yeah. Um, one thing just to cap, and then I'll get into a couple of other things, is what what do you do for a day job now? Like, how do you how do you generate revenue? What what what, what's your work like? Yeah, yeah thanks. Um, good question. I'm uh, for 20 years now. I've been in the uh, running industry, uh, road races, marathons, that kind of stuff. And what I do is I provide. I work for a company that uh, that we owned. We owned the company for almost 10 years, and then we sold to a company in Dallas, Texas called Stack Sports, but basically we provide road race timing services. So I go to a road race, a marathon, a 5k, a 10k, cross country, triathlon, anything that re requires uh, a company to provide race results, post them to the internet, give uh, overall results, uh, award lists, that kind of thing. So I've been pr providing road race timing services for, for over 20 years now. That's really cool. I don't know that I've ever met anybody who does that. And I came from track and field. Um, you know, yeah. I, I coached for several years after high school as a thrower. Um, but the, the timing systems always intrigued me because back in the day it was, you know, hand timed. And then it was, uh, then we had like some sort of 
radar mechanism. Then it was lasers, and uh, it's like it seems to keep evolving to get more and more precision, which is a good thing. That's obvious. But I, I always wondered about like the long distance things that you don't just have a track, right? Like uh, I, I just want to take a little bit to uh, satisfy my own curiosity here. How does one time a road race in that? Uh, I guess in that medium where it could go, you know, ultra marathoners go 100 miles or something um, versus just your neighborhood 5K. Like, explain how the technology works, please, because I'm, I'm just fascinated by that. Yeah, the technology is uh, is getting ever complex as, as things do in our world. Um, it's, in short, it's radio frequency identification. So um, okay. each person, each participant in the race, back in the days, I used to wear a, a choosh, a shoe, a shoe chin. Say that ten times. <laughs> um, but that has evolved now to just a very thin. I mean, like it's paper thin that attaches to the back of a bib, and it's a it, it's a radio frequency identification. We set up timing locations on the course, start line, finish line, intermediate split points where um, that chip comes into contact with the with the system and it generates a signal and it records the time that they cross that location and the unique identification of that of that tag that's and then it's just yeah and you know most of the stuff is connected to some kind of an online server so in in real time we can be sending out updates we can be bringing that information into a software program that we're providing results to the internet in, in literal real time. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. It's, it's evolved a lot since I first started. Do, are you just with uh, foot races or do you do bikes and uh, cars or anything like that? We don't do cars. Um, the, the technology does do cars. There are different, but, but it's a whole, the, the industry is so specialized. You mentioned track and field. I've never done a track and field event in my 20 year career. Um, wow. we've done some bike races. Uh, we primarily focus on running mostly large, large running events. Our, our largest race is called Boulder Boulder. It's a, in, in its heyday, I don't know when it will, it, it started to come back, but in its heyday, it was uh, 50,000 finishers. And, um, so it finishes on the field at the university of Colorado in Boulder uh, so it's a really cool gig, you know, and, and we have, it's a 10 K, but they have, uh, splits every mile and there's a, a unique start line. So there's just a lot of stuff going on. You know, it, it, it requires a lot of attention to detail and you get a lot of people upset at you if it doesn't go very well, but, um, you yeah. know, that's where, where our focus has been. That's rad. Um, thanks for sharing that. I don't, um, I don't know that we would have gotten there if I hadn't asked. So um, <laughs> I'm happy I did. Okay, so let's let's back up just a little bit. You mentioned your degrees from the the seminary, the theological degrees, uh, the one that you have, the one you're working on. I have been trying to follow Jesus since probably 2001. Got water baptized in 2006. Uh, also received the Holy Spirit then, I believe. Um, it's weird to say that. It's like, how do you not know? But but I'm pretty sure that's when it happened. Um, but yet, I don't know a lot of the theological terminology with regard to graduate schools and seminary schools. So if you could explain just what those things mean when you say, like, you're you're studying the, the, 
the origins of the scriptures or you know scripture across time and that kind of thing like what what do the degrees mean if you if you can break it down in layperson terminology well there's there's different levels and um you know i i, I currently have what's called a master of theological studies it's a it's kind of a well-rounded degree program that focuses on you know, church leadership to counseling to uh, study of the New Testament and the Old Testament hermeneutics, which is basically the uh, the way that we interpret the scriptures and and that we uh, present the scriptures to people. Um, I've taken apologetics, I've taken preaching classes. Um, there's there's other stuff. I just I can't think of it right off the top of my head. So that's that's really kind of a a basic starting point, but it is a well-rounded degree program. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm currently working on a master of arts, which is more refined and, and that is in systematic theology. So now that will deal with a lot of other things. Um, all of church history, early church history, um, you know, the medieval period, uh, the reformation church history modern church history so all of the all of the church history is covered in that the word of god um eschatology or last things ethics you know just it covers pretty much everything and so um the only thing that i would not have accomplished at that point in time if if i finish this program will be that i haven't taken biblical languages generally greek and hebrew is required to get a master of divinity degree which is basically your highest level degree program outside of a phd so an, an mdiv is kind of like if you've gotten to the MDiv, mdiv level um you know you're you're a legitimate student of the of you know studying christian ministry and so um that's kind of where i am uh and i i'm not i do fill in as a pulpit preacher for uh, a some friends of mine that that pastor churches here in Albuquerque. So I, I'm, I'm actually preaching this Sunday uh, on Jonah chapter three. And uh, so I do preach and enjoy that quite a bit, but I'm not in full-time ministry. Um, what I've kind of landed into is sort of a quasi ministry of sorts of dealing with this spiritual abuse problem that is so uh, prevalent. And uh, so I, I talk to people all across the country that have read things that I've written or been introduced to me through somebody else. Um, you know, I'll use an example recently about three weeks ago, a former, the, the church that we were members of that we, we suffered this abuse, one of their members um, took his own life. And so I was contacted by probably four different sets of people that were this man's friend outside of the church, including the man's sister. And they want to know what happened. What, what is going on here? What, why did this happen? And of course I have theories, but I don't have any evidences and proofs of what it was, but the, but his, this guy's friends was like, like, there's no indication of this kind of stuff in his life. And I don't understand why this would happen. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of my, 
education part, I guess. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I didn't know that about the MDiv and the languages. Um, I'd always said that it, I'm, I'm never going back to graduate school unless it's A, somebody else pays for it, and B, it's either an MDiv or an MD. And uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just done with school. But that's really cool to hear, and it's neat to hear about all that, uh, the different classes and courses that you can take. Um, yeah. I do want to get into the to the suicide because we're a mental health podcast after all, mm-hmm. and then the ripple effect of that, and then how you unearth some of the perhaps causalities because at the end of the day we don't ever really know, but we can certainly speculate with a with a high degree of confidence in certain situations. Um, but I have one more question to ask about that, which is um, when you when you go through this program at a particular uh, school. We'll say mm-hmm. yours is, a, I believe you said a Baptist or Reformed Baptist. We just had, a, this is fresh on my mind because we just had a podcast for Walk the Talk America where we invited a Christian counselor from Oklahoma on. His name is Johnny Sanders. And we were talking about how Christianity and psychology are not mutually exclusive. And you and I will get into that in a, in a little bit here too. Um, but one of the things that came up was making sure that as as Christian therapists you know, or therapists who follow Christ, I should say that, rather than putting the other one ahead, that it's really uh, presumptuous to believe that we are seeing what our patient, let's say we have a Christian patient who comes in, that we're seeing the same thing because of all the different sects and uh, denominations within the Christian umbrella. How does one go through a school uh, based with a, on a certain viewpoint, perhaps, and be able to be open enough uh, and curious and humble enough to know that there are different ways of interpretation or interpreting God's word based on the the big R religion that precedes it, perhaps. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think people are really curious about that. I know I am. And that, that's like a great question. I know that's probably overstated, right? People say that. That's a great question. That is a really great question because... There is so much splintering of of um, of Christian denominations, and there's so much infighting, and there's so much infighting in just the Reformed movement. So you know you've got Reformed um, dispensationalists. You've got it's what's that? What's that word? Maybe explain that word too. Yeah. So dispensationalists would believe that um, like the interpretation of the book of revelation, I'm going to kind of summarize this would mean that there are like um, Jesus talks about a return in a thousand year millennial reign. That's the millennium. So a literal 1000 year reign will, where Christ will return. Um, they will sort of restore the nation of Israel and and then there's um, this this reign on earth where Christ is ruling on the earth. There's so it's a confusing concept to me because I don't see it in the scriptures. But but people are, are really adamant about it and pretty pretty uh, dogmatic about it. Uh, but you know this is this is set up as a thousand year reign, and then eventually uh, Christ will come back, and there, there'll be the final the final judgment. So that's kind of Pre-millennial dispensationalism. There's going to be a, a, a return, like the rapture type concept, right. that Christ will draw the church out of the world, and then the world will be left to kind of um, go into complete chaos. Well, 
I mean, the world is pretty much in complete chaos right now anyway, so I'm not really sure. Um, <laughs> what are we waiting for? <laughs> right. So, you know, where I land on that topic is another uh, school of thought called amillennialism, which means ah, meaning not no millennial, no, no literal millennial. Like they're like right now, it, it, it's more of a. Um, I'm blanking on the term, but anyway, you know, we, we are kind of in a, a time where the gospel is having its way within the nations. Uh, Christ is being able to save his people as he chooses. And uh, eventually this is going to set up the, the return of Christ. There will be a, a second coming and then Christ will, will judge the, will judge the world. Um, there's one other school of thought called post-millennialism, which means I'm going to really probably make post post millennials mad if they listen to me. Basically, I think that they're going to the whole world is going to get better and better until eventually it gets restored enough where Christ will return. And the world is really a great and swell place. I just don't see that scripturally. So those are kind of the three primary camps and in, in how they operate. So um, there's a lot of people in the reform crowd that are dispensationalists. Then there's a lot of people in the reformed crowd that are amillennial. And then there's a lot of reform that are post-millennial. And none of these folks seem to get along very well based upon this, this eschatological position. So it's really kind of, it's kind of crazy. So there's so much splintering, um, you know, and I think it really kind of comes down to, um, there's, there's a quote and I'm going to blank on the guy's name. But he says, you know, in the fundamentals, you know, we need to be agreed upon, right? We, we should agree that, that Christ is God, that there's a, there's a triune God, Father, right. Son, Spirit, they're all God, they're all equal, they're co-equal, they're co-eternal, they've always existed, they've always been in harmony. Um, so we, we, should, we should agree on that. That puts us on the outs with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and, and groups like that. Um, you know, that, that Christ was born of a virgin, that Christ walked the earth, sinless, suffered, died, was buried, raised again. We should agree on those fundamentals of the Christian faith. There's other things that, that are not quite as critical, like even the eschatological position. A lot of people don't see that as a salvation issue. We should agree on the gospel. We should agree on the law gospel distinction. Uh, but there are other things that we can allow to slide and we can be gracious in how we deal with people. So, um, you know, that's really difficult. And I think that that happens through uh, some level of maturity. We have to be mature in our faith. We have to um, take on an attitude of humility with people that we don't necessarily agree with. Listen, are they my brother in, or sister in Christ? Um, many of them that have different theological positions than me, absolutely, yeah, we, they they are, and and we should we should cherish those relationships and not fight with them about the things that are are not essential to the faith. Right. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's 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 where I. I think I've landed and I hope to be gracious and more charitable than I used to be. It does resonate with me and it makes a lot of sense. And, it, and I teed that question up purposely to ask the next one, which is uh, my suspicion is that given that I just disclosed that I've been trying to figure out Jesus 
and Christ, it, Jesus as Christ, uh, the triune God, for more than 20 years now. And, you know, I, I go in and out of my zealousness about, you know, reading literature and that kind of thing. But I think if I have these questions and I am as naive as I think I am, even though I have also given teachings at my own church, uh, usually when I'm trying to hybridize psychology and spirituality, which always resonates with everybody, it's really cool. Um, yeah. I, I'm still in a position of, of ignorance and, um, and naivety, which I, th I think probably could set even me up with my multiple graduate degrees and all this you know wisdom and experience walking the earth for 45 years to be taken advantage of by some of those people who would take advantage of me because of those very same uh, dis uh, differences among and, and between the various interpretations of scripture, right? So if you think about it like this, if you got somebody who's in charge of the church community, and I mean, in this case, an actual literal organization with membership, and they know what you know, and they've gone through all the the, the seminaries and the and the studies and the and they have the degrees and they position themselves as more uh, shall we say enlightened or knowledgeable they can then sculpt if they're responsible they can sculpt the trajectory of the the church and its membership and if they're sinister or pernicious they can warp it to meet their own needs and serve their own ends if they're not say intellectually honest or humble or deferential and I think that's where we get into these uh, and why we have so many of them. It seems to, like the, it's, it's like a it's like a, a virus now. It's, it's taken over. There's so many churches, big and small, nationally, locally, uh, regionally, in some cases that are perpetrating these abuses. And it's and I think that's why it happens. Right. That the membership simply doesn't have the information to push back and ask questions. Sometimes questions aren't allowed to be asked, too. And that's problematic. Yeah. Um but I want to, what I want to ask is, how does a run-of-the-mill person, a lay person who just is like, I want to, to follow something, this Jesus thing seems to be pretty pervasive, it's, it's well-documented over time, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm afraid that my church is going to twist me around and, and abuse me, or maybe I have injury from a previous church relationship and I, I just have a distaste for it. How do we empower those people to say it's okay, you know, lock your eyes on on the Christ figure and follow mm -hmm. Scripture, but also, oh, by the way, you probably have to lean on somebody for for interpretation along the way. How do how do we restore trust and how do we empower people to ask the right questions? I guess that is that is exactly right. Uh, you've hit on so many so many points about that, which is. Um, how do you know, like, how do you know you're not being led astray? Because, right. um, you know, we went into the place that we were in with, with the noblest of desires. Um, you know, we were, like I might say, we were on fire for the Lord, right? We wanted to serve him. We wanted to, to do the right things. And, and you know, the, the book I mentioned earlier in the House of Friends, this is how he got caught up in the same thing is because a skilled narcissist will use your strengths against you. Uh, so if I have a desire to serve the Lord and I have a desire to, um, to tell others about him, the keen narcissist can 
figure that out and he's going to know how to manipulate you based upon your own strengths or weaknesses for that matter. And so I, I think you've hit on something good, Jake, which is that, you know, you, you are a highly educated man, um, but yet you haven't studied certain things about the scriptures that maybe you don't fully understand. And so a man like this guy that we were under, he will, he will know how to manipulate you. He will take things that you will say, and he will convince you that you are really wrong about that. And this is the position that you need to come to. And in fact, what he'll start doing uh, is he'll convince you you're not saved. Ah, uh, okay. That's where he, that's always the starting point for this guy in particular. I don't know about all of them. Um, probably not all of them, but this guy in particular, he will convince you you're unsaved and then he will have to get you saved. So then you're sort of under his yoke, if you will. Uh, this is, so, yeah, uh, this is really important. I want to jump in because we see this pattern develop outside of church communities and in interpersonal relationships, marriages, for example, business uh, associations, boss employee relationships, government, politics, where the person in the power differential who's above, we'll say, uh, takes what they know and leverages it against the other person. So maybe in a marriage, one spouse who may, maybe leans toward narcissistic or borderline tendencies or histrionic tendencies where they always foment some sort of tale about how they're, they're suffering or they're in need and, and they, they leverage you to help them, right? They'll make you responsible for something that they only they can fix. And so it creates this weird reversal. Uh, Josh Slocum of the Disaffected podcast yeah. calls it a narcissistic reversal where truth becomes falsehood and so forth. And they'll mm -hmm. they'll put themselves at the center of your salvation in your case. Or in the case yeah. of, say, a person who's in alcoholic recovery, the spouse might say, you know, if it weren't for me, you'd be dead on the street with a bottle in your hand. Uh, you know, so and then they can they can tease that out as long as they want. Uh, and, and I call that the shame guilt treadmill uh, through the, the emotional functioning lens. So what you're saying, I think, really covers a lot of ground and is generally applicable across many domains with regard to this cluster B stuff. But as it re pertains to the church, you know, you mentioned salvation. I'll con convince you that you're not saved. And it's like uh, Jesus dying on the cross wasn't good enough. You have to go through me now. <laughs> like, whoa, that's it's pretty arrogant. Um, but For real, I, man, it's, it's yeah. really it, it, it it's. It becomes a, a messiah complex to some degree. Um, sure, you know you you saw that with the notorious cults like David Koresh and, and Jim Jones and I'm sure others. But they uh, they will invade your space and then they will become the primary dominant figure in your life, above and beyond Christ. And then and then they create a whole a whole rule structure. That you need to follow yes. because your Christianity, you're going to, you're going to prove your Christianity through your actions and your behaviors. Right. It becomes deed based instead of grace based. That's exactly right. And, and while they'll happily quote Ephesians two, you know, for it is, for it is by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, less, you know, not of works, lest you should boast, but yet it becomes exactly that. You know, you have to prove your salvation to the group and to the group leadership constantly. Yeah, it becomes and, very performative as well. Yeah, yeah. And 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 
in my story about the man that took his life, um, I know we'll get to this. I'm convinced that that was because he was not meeting the group standard and he was, he came to a point of hopelessness. Right. There's no way out. Um, when you hem somebody in like that, there's, they, they see no alternatives because it becomes very binary. It's either this or that, but the goalpost keeps moving as well. Uh, which yeah. in, in my field, we call that a double bind or, or even gaslighting where, where we make you question your own reality. Um, it's, it's very, very pernicious, very sinister. Um, and, and you may be right on that. I've seen, I've seen many cases where I'll deal with somebody who's suffering from psychosis some psychotic disorder, perhaps in full bloom. And almost always they'll tell of a story of childhood abuse, neglect, violence that hems the kid up to believe that they have no other options. And so they, they create this alternate reality called the psychotic disorder to make actual reality make sense because it doesn't make sense when your voices of authority are in conflict with what you're actually seeing with your own lot, uh, your own lying eyes. Um, and I wanted to point something else out. It's not just questioning salvation. I read a few of your blog posts, which are quite good, by the way. Uh, Uncommon Faith is the, the website. It's uncommonfaith.org. But uh, your most recent one talks about how, um, you know, sinning is, it, it is bad, right? It's, it is bad. But you, you mentioned something about like the, um, they'll, they'll hammer you on not ever being good enough. You, you can't catch up, right? So maybe it's not salvation unto itself. It's the, it's the constant reminder that you'll never, you'll never get there, mm-hmm. uh, which again is a shame and guilt treadmill. Uh, sometimes it might be that uh, your, heart and, your heart has been hardened in, uh, toward the church and only, only I can tell if your heart becomes soft again. But either way, the pattern emerges that this, this individual or this, you know, it's a council of individuals, will hold ultimate authority almost in the place of God himself. And that's, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the telltale signs. If you find yourself having to constantly appease a human being, that's probably an indicator that you're in that cycle. Yeah, you're right. I, the, the term I use is a battering ram. They, they use a batter, they use sin as a battering ram against you. And it's, and, and I've written in, in other um, posts before I actually n- named names. Um, I did a series on a book called Churches That Abuse, and I wrote five blog articles on that, just kind of highlighting certain aspects of the book, um, which is a great read, by the way. It really explains a lot. And, um, you know, we just we just talked about how they there has to be a reporting system because now this church in particular is not a big church, so it 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 can easily be managed. But if you take a guy like uh, Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill, who Christianity Today did a big long podcast series called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill," excellent, very well done, and very accurate, I might add. Um, you know, they there has to be a system for the sheep to report back to the shepherd on other sheep, right? And so. So this becomes the, I describe as, as the fishbowl mentality, you know, everybody's in their own fishbowl and everybody's, you know, watching them. Um, and the pastor will even preach on this topic or, or talk about it from the pulpit, which is, you know, we have to, we have to help keep each other from sinning. You know, we have to, you know, so if, you know, Matthew 18 is the, 
classic text. If your brother sins, go to him and him alone and tell him his fault. If he receives you, you've won your brother over. Okay. So, you know, if you and I are in a relationship and, and I happen to see you steal a candy bar, Jake, you just stole a candy bar. Oh, you're so right. It, it, it went over my head and I spaced it off. I'll go back. I'll re- repay the store. You've won your brother over, right? Then it's, then it's step two is if they say, no, that I did not do that. Then you would take another person to be a witness. Then you would tell it to the church. Well, this, they take this to an extreme, like you're reporting on, boy, you know, it kind of seemed like you didn't say that very well, or, you know, so it's always this, you're on edge with people in your own community. And it it creates this sense of like, I got to really watch out what I say. I got to watch out what I do. I got to be really careful. I, I have to guard my words. So you can't have authentic community in a place like this because everybody's all, it seems like they're always out to get you. Well, you're in a surveillance state at that point. Exactly. Exactly. And for what purpose? To, to get you to stop sinning? Like that's, that was the point of the whole post, which is like, how well are you doing in that regard? Like, you know, how many times have I already sinned today and thought word or deed? You know, I just, we are, justified by faith in Christ. That means there's a legal declaration with God that says Christ paid your debt. You're no longer, you're, you're no longer a sinner. You're, you're justified by your faith. You can't work your way into a better position with God. You're already as good as you're going to get because you're, you're seen in Christ. But, you know, these people think you've got to inch your way up the ladder and be more sanctified. And of course there's nuances to that, right? But that's the whole point is these societies become so debilitating to people. It's it's hard to live in them. But I wonder how much of that explains what's going on in culture writ large across the west these days too where we are um we're policing each other uh based yeah. on our own world view. Right. There is no anchoring principle to which we can point and say, here's where you ran afoul. And I'd like to you know, invite you to correct that. It's a it's not an invitation to correct. It's not a conversation about viewpoints. It's about thou shalt do what I tell you. Otherwise, I'll rally the mob to your door. And yeah. and again, that has an emotional reflexive response, too, because you don't want to get kicked out of your tribe because the, the yeah. undertone is. You're going to die without the tribe, and we are your tribe. Yeah. You'll die without us. You know, and the, oh, oh, by the way, there is no other tribe but ours. <laughs> um, and okay. that's it's so it's so warped. Yeah, and I think I think for our profession, that's where the concept of non-judgmentalism comes in. People hear non-judgment and they hear um, condoning or authorizing or agreement, and that's not what it is. What it is is saying I acknowledge that what you did is bad. I can judge the deed without judging the human being on the inside who's performing the deed. And that it's a very abstract concept because also in our Western culture, we don't do well with uncertainty. We don't do well with embracing mystery, which is strange for uh, a tri- you know, Christians who believe in a triune God. Like, that's a mystery. You can't, can't quantify that. I can't, can't explain it, right? It's just how you have to embrace it. Um, but when we live in a, a culture that is driven by certainty, wants guarantees, predictable outcomes, scientific results, things we can point to, box up, label, when we talk about grace forgiveness, compassion, 
non-judgment, they're very, very abstract when literally the world, the whole world is saying, nope, figure it out and write it down and put it in bullet points on a slide deck. Otherwise, I won't, I won't believe it. Uh, it becomes really hard to let go of the, the check boxes through which you'd have to work in order to achieve this, this, the sanctification or whatever. And that becomes a, a moving target if there's somebody lording it over you. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask too about this concept of good and evil. Uh, I think that we are absolutely in a spiritual battle. I think there are uh, demonic presences and even some non-demonic just not God presences in the, in the spiritual realm. And I wonder how much evil wraps itself in, because it always comes in through the back door, it seems. It doesn't come in through the front door. Um, but it comes in and it wraps itself around these people who represent themselves as good, righteous, holy beings who are leading churches or whatever. And then it serves to unravel what would otherwise be a pretty strong alignment with God. I'm thinking of like C.S. Lewis talking in the screw tape letters. <laughs> you know, it's like, don't, don't cheer the big events, uh, Wormwood, because uh, th that actually tends to galvanize people. Uh, look for the small cracks you know, through which you can, can weave yourself. If you would, talk a little bit about your opinion on that, because I know what mine is, but it's, it's a little bit unformed. Yeah, um, yeah that's, a, that's, that's good too, man. Um, first of all, I wanted to say Josh, Joshua Slocum does a great job in addressing this on a cultural level. He does. I mean, his podcast is really great. I love it. Um, and then, you know, do you want like I can give you the theological answer to your question. Like Paul writes in Ephesians, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle, wrestle against, uh, you know, right. the, the, the authorities of, of darkness, the darkness and the dominion and, and rulers and authorities that are, that are in a place that we don't see. So we are absolutely hundred percent scripturally. We're in a battle against good and evil. Um, Paul also writes in Galatians that, uh, Satan sometimes disguises himself as an angel of light. So what we think might be good can be disguised as good and in evil. Jesus Absolutely. wrote in Matthew 7, be, be, be aware of false prophets, for they come to you in, as wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul writes in Acts 20, be, beware, after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. So we have scriptural evidences that these things are going to happen, are happening. And, you know, why would we not think that that is absolutely true? The screw tape letters, I think, is a really good example of how Satan works and how you know, forces in the, in the unseen world that we don't know about is going on. Uh, you know, so, uh, I mentioned this last night on the show that I was on with, with Todd, with TC. Um, my wife and I went to the movie, uh, killers of the flower moon a couple nights ago, Sunday afternoon. Um, and it's a three hour and 39 minute movie. It's Holy a long cow. It's a long show, but oh my goodness, it is so good. And as we walked out of out of the show, I don't know if I said it, my wife said it, we were both thinking it. Uh, the world hasn't really changed. So this movie is is a period movie. It's done in the 1920s. Uh, that's a hundred years ago. 
and um, greed, corruption, uh, power, uh, desire for power. Uh, all these things are the same things that are going on literally today. And and the the antagonist of the movie, I guess, is um, Robert De Niro, who plays a guy who you know, is always talking about the Bible and talking about how, you know, God does this. Well, literally, he's just having people killed all the time, you know, and he's trying to get these rights to these oil fields that these Osage Indians of Oklahoma own by birthright because it's on on their land. It's on reservation land. So he's trying to manipulate and get it. And I'm like, nothing has changed. You know, nothing has changed since the beginning of of time. You know, as sin entered the world, um, it it didn't take very long in the biblical narrative that that, you know, Cain killed his brother. You know, so um, it's just I guess it's the way it is. And it's it's the way it is, is because God allows evil to exist in the world. Um, do people think that they're evil? I guess I imagine people are deceived into what they think about themselves. So I use an example I use in, in apologetics when I'm having discussions with people about Christ. Do you think Hitler thought he was an evil man? No chance. In his own, no, no, no. He thought he was doing good in the world, right? So these people are, they have a mindset that is corrupted by their nature. Paul writes in Romans 6 that we are in one of two natures. We are either, it says he, we are either a slave to sin, we are a slave to righteousness. Okay, so so that means there's only two types of people in the world. There's people that are following Christ and literally are desiring to live holy lives. Now, they don't they fall short of that all the time. And then there are people that that are not doing that. And Paul says that they're slaves to sin. Now, that doesn't mean everybody in this world is that's a non-Christian is an evil right. you know trying to destroy people person. There are there are by the standards of culture and 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 everything there are good people in this world that that try to live decent lives and be right to people, you know, but ultimately in an ultimate sense, there's, there's believers and unbelievers, and there's not really an in-between stage. Um, So we have to look at it ultimately in that manner. And then what is going on in the world um, that makes people do what they do? I mean, it's, it's their internal nature. They're, they're, there hasn't been a heart change, right? Paul talks about the the regeneration and and the change of heart that comes through believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and and then it, it you know he changes your heart, heart of stone, heart of flesh, as Ezekiel talks about. A lot of different scriptural references about it. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. I don't want to do that. Um, I don't know if I answered the question or not. You're not rambling, and you did answer the question. I'm uh, I'm also wrestling right now so i i'm not a chapter and verse guy and i haven't ever been but i was recently invited to become one because something that i do very well is cite statute and regulatory authority in my own profession and many others i'm very good at looking at bylaws and seminal documents and uh this this individual asked me like 
you're so good at that. Why aren't you good at citing the Bible? And I was like, hmm, maybe I need to work on that because <laughs> I probably have the capacity. But yeah. I believe – so I'm, that's my uh, prelude to say that I think somewhere there's a, a reference in Scripture to saying that if truth exists, it's God's truth. So I, I say that to link to – I'm a very big fan of Jonathan Haidt, uh, H-A-I-D-T, his, his work on uh, teens – and their mental illness related to social media is, is uh, groundbreaking, I, it's emergent, and I think if I may make a commercial for Jonathan Haidt, go to his Substack. it's called After Babel, and uh, his colleague Gene Twenge, uh, they've teamed up to do some really, really cool stuff with youth and mental illness and suicidal ideation and generational differences and whatnot. But the idea here is that uh, in his book, The Righteous Mind, Haidt argues for a, uh, a secular morality and I, I really like that for people who are maybe skittish or off-put by the religious morality. It makes a very lucid argument for being able to be a good person and, and find morality secularly. And I, I believe that that is godly. And, and I'm curious what you think about that kind of concept. Does, does a person have to follow Christ in order to be living the truth of goodness in the world? And if it's all created by God and truth is truth, then do, is that possible uh, scripturally? It seems like it, it is, and the, the people who are following that that particular path just maybe haven't embraced Jesus yet. I have no idea, but I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, it's... Um, I, or are we just doing mental acrobatics to avoid commitment? No, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't shy away from those things because, you know, I, I have done a lot of street evangelism. That's kind of one of the ways Todd and I connected was whether we were doing, you know, open air ministry, like open air preaching or, you know, talking to people on a college campus or ministering at an abortion facility. Um, you know, it's really kind of the age old question that that pilot even asked Jesus and he he famously said, "What is truth?" And you know, what is truth? Is truth objective? And if truth is objective, that means it has to have an anchor point. Correct. It has to have, you know, two plus two can't equal five in in an objectively true world. It right. has to equal four. Um, uh, you know, the, the truth has to be that, um, well, I'll use a biblical statement, you know, because Jesus said it. Have you not read that in the beginning, God created them male and female? You know, that means there's only male and female. You know, we might have some odd accidents of, you know, genes getting mixed up or something like that. But, you know, it, it, effectually there's male and female. So um, I think the the truth has to be anchored in something. And for me, uh, that is the God of the Bible. And I can argue against, um, you know, the Muslim that might say, well, you know, Allah or, or Muhammad is the, is the, the further revelation of of Jesus, and we believe Jesus was a great prophet, and yada. But Jesus isn't God in in the Muslim worldview. So I, I have to argue with the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as they as 
they would exist in their original manuscripts because we have translations which have some have some uh, nuances to them, but they're primarily you know incredibly accurate. Um, but we have to have truth, and and the way I see it is the only way we can have truth is if there is a God that has created all things and He has established the world, He has established mankind, He has established all things, and and He holds together the world. And so it has to be according to what he has said. And so then to get to your question, I have to examine what did Jesus say? And the probably the most famous thing that Jesus said that someone would answer in a question like this is he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. You cannot get to the Father through intellect, Muhammad, yeah. Joseph Smith, um, you know, any of the other prophets, or intellect, or good works, or you name it. I don't disagree with you, Jake. There are good people in the world. There are people in the world that do a lot more good than I do that are non Christians. But their works is really what they're depending on to get them if they want to think that. In fact, I have a next door neighbor, a very fine man. He's in his 80s. He, uh, you know, I could tell you his his military record, his business record, you know, intelligent. He says, Kevin, I'm a I'm a good man. Don't you dare tell me that, you know, that I'm going to hell or whatever it was that we had a conversation one day. I wasn't even trying to do it. I was just saying, well, look at what Jesus said, you know? And so that those words do are offensive to people because people want to believe in their own goodness. And yes, you know, to a degree they're good, but, but when we measure it against God's goodness and the standard of perfection and the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life on this world, on this earth, he never sinned in thought, word, or deed at any point in time in his life. And that made him an acceptable sacrifice to the Father on our behalf. And so Christianity really boils down to the simple fact that we can say, I give up. I can't do it on my own. I need somebody else. I need his help. And then we have to turn to him and receive his goodness on our behalf. Because we all know we do bad things, right? Even a little kid knows they do bad things. And so ultimately, if we're to judge all of these things, we have to judge it by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the God man. He is the one that came to this earth to save us from our sins. He wasn't, as Lewis said, he just wasn't a, a good example or a good moral teacher or, you know, uh, that thing. He was God in the flesh. I so have, I, I did have, I answer the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah Man, for I get sure. Going. But now I have, but I have more. Um, and I really enjoy this kind of dialogue, uh, getting to ask questions that I think have only rolled around in my own head. So the, the two part question coming up and I'm trying to frame this here a little bit. So I'm the first part is I'm wondering what keeps people from accepting that. And I think that it's because 
it's a surrendering and I think that it's that we don't want to surrender or um, you know kneel uh, or submit submit has become a dirty word now too that yeah. and I think it's because the culture tells us not to I think culture says you can be God of your own universe and that's be, that's part of our cluster B society where a lot of people are narcissistic histrionic borderline antisocial because they believe in the power of their own uh, decisions and their own choices and their own intellects and whatnot. So I think that's why. And then the second part of that question is, and it may, maybe I'm just trying to confirm my bias here. <laughs> I have no idea. But I think that the second part of the question becomes, is culture part of original sin? Because we have like, what, three paragraphs of what the world was like before sin entered. And so we don't really know what God would have expected of a, of a world living in harmony, uh, unclothed, all our needs met, unashamed. We know very, very little. Everything else is post-fall. And I could chalk up, like, like you mentioned, the, aforem the, the aforementioned um, you know, genetic mutations. I don't think those were supposed to be there. I, I, don't, I don't think Product that, of the fall. Absolutely. Yeah. Disease, cancers, violence, um, anything that, that runs afoul of God's goodness, and, and I think goodness even unto itself is just almost impossible for a human mind to understand. Uh, so as I look at this, I go, well, people resist accepting Jesus as Christ, as God, as their salvation path, because they believe in their own power. And the reason they believe in their own power is because sin entered the world and Satan has dominion over the world, capital T, capital W. And is that is it that simple? Is it that binary of an explanation, or am I just overstating this? No, I, I think it's that simple. Um, you know, do we remember? Do you remember what the Lord said to Adam? You know, you you can eat of any tree of the garden that I give you. Of this one tree, you cannot eat. This was the tree of the knowledge and good, of good and evil. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He said to he said to Adam. Well, what did it mean he would die? Because Adam didn't, you know, Eve took the app, the it's, I, I don't think it's an apple, but the fruit, um, she ate of it and gave to her husband and he ate it too. And then they both became aware that they were naked. So they, they became aware of good and evil in this, in this moment. All they knew was the goodness of the Lord and, and his ultimate full provision and harmony with him and walking with him and communing with him. It was, it was perfect. Um, but Adam didn't drop dead on the moment that he ate it. Like, well, what does that mean? So he died spiritually. I think Paul articulates that very well in Ephesians 2, 1, you know, you who were dead in your sins and transgressions, you know, who walk according to the course of this world, according to the course of the power of the air, meaning Satan, they walk, we walk according to, to what became our new nature. We have, now we have this sin nature that the, the curses went out. There was all these kinds of things that happened. And again, Paul writes about this very well in, in Romans six, uh, five and six. And, and he talks about how faith uh, comes through Abraham, not through works, and and that you know that we have to receive these things. So, what keeps people from receiving them? I think you're exactly right. It's 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 pride. I don't need religion. I don't need something to prop me up. I'm self sufficient. You know, 
um, whatever. Our default nature is a sinful nature. We're not born into the world as as Christians. Correct. You know, it's a choice. Our, right. My 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 children were not born Christians, even though both their parents are Christians. They have to come to a to a, a point where they're going to uh, receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have to repent of their sins. They have to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is how salvation is achieved. Um, you know, they're not no sprinkling of water, no, you know, we could get into the theological debates about that, but it, 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 we won't. Um, so everybody has to kind of be confronted with this issue in the world, which is who am I? What do I, what do I live for? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Everybody wrestles with those challenges, right? I mean, I got to believe as good as they can possibly be on this earth, but still not be right with God. Let me ask this then, I, and this is something that I think a lot of people ask, and I, again, I think I know the answer, but I'm not sure, and I, I would rather have you answer it. Original sin happens. Death is a mm -hmm. spiritual death. It's a separation from God. Okay, So the only way to reconnect with God then is through Jesus. But what about the Old Testament? And what were people doing to try to realign with God in the Old Testament? And then why was Jesus' sacrifice necessary? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are terrific questions. Um, I am, you know, for you on a personal level, um, I'm going to tell you at some point in time, when you get time, read through the book of Romans. And um, specifically pay attention to chapters four, five, and six, because I think um, Paul writes, and I'll just read this real quick from five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Okay, so justification is a legal standing with God. Okay, like you're in a courtroom of law. And if, if you're justified, that means you're declared innocent. I'm just going to. Like you're adjudicated, Summer. in other words, and God is the judge. God, okay. God is the judge. He has declared you in right standing with him. And it's his law that uh, against which he's judging you. Okay. That's correct. That's correct. So since we have been justified by faith, and that's the key, by faith, it's by faith, it's by our belief that Christ suffered and died on our behalf, and that we've received that good news, that gospel message of salvation. It says if, that we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer enemies of God. If we're if we are now at peace with God, that would would presuppose that we were at one point in time enemies with God. Good point. Yep. And so so the the goodness that comes uh, the the right relationship with God is through Christ by His sacrifice. So you mentioned in the the old testament the old testament it was the same exact same way and in in chapter 4 of romans it also it says this very same thing um it it says that uh let's see how in this this is verse 9 is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, meaning Jew or Gentile, right? For we say 
that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Notice the word faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He was justified. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after being circumcised? It was not after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Abraham received faith in Christ before he was circumcised. Uh, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. In other words, salvation in the Old Testament was received exactly the same way as it is for us. Through faith. It is faith in Christ, but it was it was faith in a coming Messiah. Right. He had he was foretold all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis, where it says through the seed of the woman would come Christ. It doesn't say Christ, but it says that that mankind will be saved through the seed of the woman. And if we trace back the lineage, we can see that. Christ's lineage goes all the way back to Eve, proven through the scriptures. But this is what this is how salvation occurred. But they're looking forward. We're looking back. And but it but it's all through faith in Christ. So it feels like this Old Testament is this book of all these rules and all this, you know, stuff that we had to do. And and yeah, there was a lot of that. But this is all foreshadowing and what scholars call typology, like, you know, the story of Joseph or the story of Jonah. They are what are called types of Christ. They they sort of typified Christ before him, like Jonah was a prophet. Christ was a prophet. Jonah, Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. Christ was three days in the belly of the earth. He preached to the city of Nineveh that they needed to believe and and be saved while Christ preached to the masses in in the New Testament. So this typified him, you know, that this this was an example of him. So, you know, those in the New New Testament or the Old Testament should say, well, we see that this is what is to come. Do you remember in John chapter three, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night and Jesus says, you're you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. Yeah. He was, he was rebuking him for not understanding the the actual teaching of the old Testament. And as a old Testament scholar, Nicodemus should have been able to understand that. Is that then why Jews don't believe that Jesus was the Christ? They're still looking for the Messiah. And so, um, and, and I, I don't think he'll mind me sharing this. It was a conversation over dinner and there were a bunch of people around. But my good friend Yehuda Reamer, who goes by the Pew Pew Jew online, he's a big Second Amendment advocate, really, really good dude. Um, I asked him, how come? You know, he did all the acts and very well documented and witnessed. He says, in short, a lot of the Old Testament stuff was done. In, you know, God presented himself in massive crowds and Jesus did it with only a few people around. And that's a, an oversimplification. Um, but it seems hard to understand how somebody could overlook that or say, well, no, that wasn't quite aligned with what we believe the coming mm-hmm. Messiah will be. Help me understand how somebody could make that decision, you know, let alone a whole body of people, right? Um, sure. what, what are they looking for that would fulfill those prophecies then? Well, they've, 
they've misunderstood the purpose of the Messiah. So they're looking for an, a, a restoration of a national Israel. Gotcha. It wasn't that wasn't missed. You know, the writers of the New Testament, like even the the disciples, at, at this after Jesus was getting ready to depart, there they said, "At this time, will you now restore the nation of the the you know Israel?" Uh, so they're looking for a political leader, not not a not the suffering servant of Isaiah fifty three or Psalm twenty two. All these messianic prophecies that that tell almost exactly what's going to happen to him, that he's going to be crucified. He's going to have a crown of thorns and his beard is going to be pulled out. His garment is going to be, you know, uh, gambled for all these things so clearly point to him. And yet they don't see the political aspect of that. They're just like, who's this fool? He died on, on a cross. I mean, what is this? So my, my view, that's why they, they don't see the Messiah. What would it look for, uh, or what what would it look like then if we we say nation of Israel, and I think these days we think geopolitical nation with you know, borders and all that stuff, but uh, that's a pretty modern concept. I think you know, yeah. Old Testament nation of Israel is the people; it's not the the land or the the, the demarcations on a map. So, what, what would you speculate that Jews today are looking for in a Messiah? Yeah, I think. Um... I think someone that will come in, um, have the support of all of the people, uh, will be a military power that will try to restore the Old Testament land of Canaan. So, yeah, you know, you have Israel as a geopolitical point on a map. Um, I don't think the boundaries match up. I mean, like if you, I can't do it, but you know, certain scholars can tell you exactly where the boundaries are and where they should be and all that kind of stuff. So they're looking to restore the temple, um, to gain back control of, of all the land. Um, in, in my opinion, in my, my thought process, I, I, I could, I'm not, I'm not really studied in this area. So somebody will probably say, you're a fool. You don't know what you're talking about, but I think this is the general gist of what uh, I believe is what they're looking for. Okay, that that tracks. That makes sense. So let's get back a little bit to uh, noticing what how how can we end this uh, discussion with some hope and inspiration for people who are trapped in the the narcissistic abuse pattern with church yeah. leaders or even in their own work settings or their families. What are some telltale signs? We covered a couple of them. Um, but what what would you point out? What are some some key bullet points to look for if you're like, ah, that's that's not quite right? And I'm thinking right now some of the traps that I've fallen into with interpersonal relationships and organizational conflicts, uh, the denial of commandments, like uh, we'll just say water baptism, because you mentioned sprinkling of water. I've I've heard people say things like. I don't need to stand in a tub just to prove my faith. It's like, well, yeah, but you could. <laughs> like, that's that's a that's a yielding. That's a submission. Um, yeah. You know, the I don't I don't need a I don't need a certificate from the government to prove my marriage. You know, stuff like that where they're they're defaulting to their own understanding and own power as opposed to embracing mystery and submitting to faith. Right. So, what are some other things that you have experienced that you could point out to help people not only escape this path, but also assure them that 
for all we know, you're a charlatan, right? <laughs> I don't think you are because you, you seem to be presenting this with an open hand and with humility. You're like, yeah, this is just the way that I'm seeing it, as opposed to you must see it my way. I think that's another telltale yeah. sign. So twofold question, what is what are some, some things we can notice to get out of the trap? And then what are some things we can notice about somebody who is um, who is fully submitted, who is obedient and won't try to manipulate somebody for their own gain? Yeah, man, that's a that's awesome. I agree with you fully on how there's a need to identify this stuff. So um, the first thing I think is that the authority, and I'm gonna I'm just gonna lump it like this. I said at the beginning, the authoritarian pastor, let's call him the spiritually abusive, narcissistic pastor. Number one, he will have a very domineering personality. He will attempt to be large and in charge all the time. Um, he will be the authority in all matters of church life and doctrine. Um, he will be, uh, his church will be one, he, maybe he won't be as bold to say he's the only true church in town, but he might. Um, mm -hmm. He will be dismissive of, of people that are of different theological convictions than he is. He's got it right. He's got it all figured out. Um, you know, he will try to convince you of things. He will not honor your conscience. He will not allow you to make your own decisions about your life. He will try to domineer and control areas in your life that he has no business dealing with. I want to read real quickly just some of the discerning signs from this book. It's an, it's an old classic called Churches That Abuse. By Ronald N. Roth. I just this looked that just up. It's copyright 1992. I had no, I mean, like, right. this This isn't yes, new. Is. <laughs> this is yeah, 30 year old stuff. Around. This is not new stuff. So he says this um, what he means by abusive churches, then he describes the 10 identifying traits control oriented leadership, spiritual elitism. So we're better than everybody else. This is what they'll lead you to believe um, manipulation of membership uh, perceived persecution lifestyle rigidity a rigid lifestyle emphasis on experience suppression of dissent harsh discipline of members denunciation of other churches and the painful exit process oh, now man. there's a lot more to these things um, that that we can talk about, um, I'll you know the books that are the more recent books in the House of Friends by Ken Garrett or Bully Pulpit by Michael Kruger. All of these are so well done that that I mean Michael Kruger obviously researched this topic painstakingly and really it, it was almost like he was in the in the congregation that we were a part of you know it, it, it literally he knew it so well i'm just like I, I couldn't even believe it um so i would encourage the person if they're thinking that there's any kind of this sort of heavy handedness in how they're feeling if they're lacking joy in their christian life uh there's probably a problem you know and um reach out to you reach out to me um pick up one of these books go talk to Go talk to a different church minister, you know, go to a different, another church down the street, try to find one that 
you know, isn't a heretical church, of course, you know, but has has a good reputation in the community and ask them, you know, find out. Trust your instincts because you're, you'll be told things like you shouldn't trust your feelings. You know, you can only trust the truth of God's word. Well, yes, that's true. But God has given us a conscience that we can think clearly and and we can understand things. So trust your internal gut, you know, uh, definitely trust yourself uh, and and seek it out, you know, learn, educate yourself. This this resonates so much because there have been so many organizations I've been a part of. And again, I mentioned the interpersonal relationships, too, where I see those types of things going on uh, where dissent is not allowed. There's mm-hmm. uh, screaming and yelling. There's uh, emotional leveraging. And the, man, the painful exit process is one that really hits like they yeah. they guilt you into staying. And it's like, don't right. go, you know. Um, and so. To, to invert that, I would say all the opposite characteristics would apply. And I'm thinking of my own profession where we embrace concepts like non-judgment, like I mentioned before, but also non-attachment, meaning that if the, the church leader or the organizational leader isn't, or the therapist, isn't allowing you to make your own choices in spite of the inevitable pain that may come, then that's probably a person who's not honoring your own autonomy. And yeah. if they're not honoring your own autonomy, they probably won't be there to pick up the pieces after you fall because they'll be there instead to say, I told you so, which is another narcissistic leveraging. And I think the reason that this all makes so much sense to you as you're reading the book, you're like, wow, was this guy in my congregations? Because the, the same symptoms pervade all the applications. You'll see the same pattern emerge in domestic abuse, domestic violence, uh, organizational manipulation and control, government uh, it, it, and when people get into power, they tend to want to acquire more power rather than being comfortable yeah. with letting it go, which is non-attachment. And I always get asked this, but you're like, well, he's already got a lot of power. How much more does he need? More. How much more yeah. than that? More. More than what? Yeah. More. Always more. Right. So there is Always no more. end to it. There is no checkpoint. There is no arrival where they go, I'm satiated. They'll never hit that because they're trying to fill an empty... God-shaped hole, to borrow a phrase, uh, and you won't ever fill that with the world, right? And I love that you you reference something of you know, trust yourself, and I think capital S self, as in like the Carl Jung true self, the essence, the div- the divinity within all of us. Because if if we are divine creatures and we are made by God, your true self, as created by God, does know what's right, and it and it's yeah. trying to emerge constantly. That's why I love Jung's writings. And I think the the idea of the collective unconscious where a lot of our archetypes live and, and so forth, I think that's where original sin also lives. So we're not born clean, pure, perfect, and intact like I teach it. We are, but we are born with the sinful nature. And if we're not mindful of it, we will fall into it. And even worse, if we try to carve it out and reject it as though it's not within us, we are all the more likely to fall into it. And to quote Jung, you know, that which we resist persists. So I think we need to be able to embrace our sinful nature and simply choose not to go that way, but don't pretend it doesn't exist because it absolutely does and it will trip you up. Thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. That's that's great. There's, man, I mean, the, these these conversations could go on for days and days because they there's could. so much to this. It's so complex, but yet it's simple to identify. And you mentioned that, you know, Enroth's book was from the 90s or something. might have even been like, 
maybe that's a new copyright because I thought he did this like even back in the 70s or something like that. But, you know, it's like there's like Solomon wrote, there's nothing new under the sun. And like I mentioned, Killers of the Flower Moon, that was 100 years ago. And these are these are the same manipulative tactics that the um, antagonist Robert De Niro was using in the show was he was manipulating his nephew uh, played Ernest who was played by Leonardo DiCaprio, he's manipulating him. He's using these tactics uh, to manipulate him to get ultimately what he wants, which is, as you said, more, 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 more oil rights, more insurance policies, all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's nothing new. It's all it's all the same stuff. Yeah, it was the same stuff that persecuted Jesus, right? It's a, the, yeah. the Roman Empire wanted... More, they can't have this fly in the ointment, you know, threatening yeah. their their hegemony, their orthodoxy. Uh, so I think I think you know we about, we got to be mindful of our egos and understand the meaning of the word enough. I have enough. I'm good. You know, right? Um, yeah. So, man, this was really good. I sure appreciate your time. Um, I, like I, like you said, we can go on a long time discussing this stuff, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very happy to have. Uh, had you here. I do have one more thing. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask it. Uh, one of my very, very good friends has asked me this, and I don't have an answer because I didn't go to seminary. This, I think it's pronounced the Scriptio Contigua, which is the like okay. how we translate the scriptures across time and how we know that they are accurately translated. Yeah. You speak a little bit to that as much as you can. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really good. Well, I, I mentioned to you that Michael Kruger, who wrote the book Bully Pulpit, is a is probably one of the foremost leading New Testament scholars in the science of textual criticism. So what they do is is they dig up old documents in places like Israel and you know in some of these old ancient they they find these things, right? Like the Dead Sea Scrolls might be the most famous where they've discovered scrolls and stuff that was written, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago. Uh, and so they examine them for accuracy and they examine them based upon how they, how are they accurate against what was originally written? Because we don't have original manuscripts of the Bible. Um, but what we do have is I think there's five or 6,000 manuscripts and there's like as many as 25,000 it might be just a small little piece of a manuscript. And then what they do is they'll see where that's from and how it relates to what's written today. And so new translations of the Bible don't necessarily go back to previous translations of the Bible. Like, like is the, they'll say the telephone game, you know, I'll tell you something, you tell someone something, and then it distorts down through time. Well, there are errors in the Bible, but they're generally scribal errors because we didn't have fax machines and copying machines and, you know, computers to to do this stuff. So a, a scribe would literally write them out by hand. Well, he might make a mistake, you know, a small mistake. But the scribal, even the scribal errors, it's it's just... It's just minuscule. It's like punctuation so so, or something, or okay. Exactly, exactly. And and in ancient Hebrew, there was never even a space between the words. You know, 
or they didn't have punctuation marks to distinguish between vowels and consonants. And oh. so the, the understanding of these languages is, is really deep and intense. Um, but there's, there's so much information on textual criticism that to say that the Bible hasn't been accurate, uh, accurately translated down through the, the, the years is, is really a, uh, a cowardly way out of the argument. Because it's just, it's just not even, it doesn't even hold any water. I mean, the Bible is by far the most attested to and verified ancient document in the entire world. There's nothing that's even close to it. And basically, like you can go back and look at some of these things. The book of Isaiah that we have today, there's a full manuscript, a scroll of it in Jerusalem uh, that is virtually identical word for word as to what you would have in your your NIV or your ESV hmm. translation of the New Testament or uh, of the book of Isaiah today. So, um, you know, the, the Bible is a very, very accurate book. That's cool. I appreciate you going over that because I think yeah, that does that trip people up. Well, uh, Kevin Yant, not Jaunt. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 I'm really glad we connected and I look forward to more. Yeah, I'm going to ping you more when I have questions and, uh, you know, through yeah, text sure, or whatever. And it's very, very cool. So, uh, how can people reach you if you want to be reached either through, yeah. you know, uh, if somebody needs a timing system for their road race or, yeah. uh, or anything else, uh, I know I mentioned the, the website uncommonfaith.org, but what else, where else are you? Yeah. I think uncommon faith is the best way if you want to, see anything that I've done. Um, I have a kind of a section on abusive churches that would really highlight all of the articles that I've written that deal with that topic. Um, you know, for the nerds out there, I've got a few, th you know, a number of theological papers that, you know, address certain things like, you know, good and evil or, or the thinking of Thomas Aquinas or free will or, you know, various different theological topics that I think are, are interesting to a lot of people. Um, so uncommonfaith.org is a good place. I'm also on Facebook. That's where I would primarily, um, you know, do my social media. I, I have a Twitter account. I think it's at Kevin Yant. Uh, so you could reach me there or X, whatever. And um, so, but I'm, I'm rarely there. So Facebook or Uncommon Faith is really where I am. And I even have personal contact information at Uncommon Faith, personal email address. I might've even put my cell phone in there. So I'm, I'm always willing to talk to people on any of these topics. Um, it's a ministry I never thought I'd be in, but, but I am in nonetheless, and, and I'm grateful for it. The Lord has taught me a lot. Uh, he's humbled me a lot. And, um, and I've, I've done a lot of study on these things, and I hope to continue to do the work in this area that will help people, not not hinder them, but help them, you know, minister to their souls and help them uh, achieve healing through uh, learning who Christ really is and, and his grace and his merciful kindness toward us. So, you know, and I think that's a hallmark of somebody you want to you want to follow, too, is uh, the way that you you laid that out. You're like, I'm accessible. Talk to me if you want, yeah. right? It's not, it's not yeah. a jump through the hoops and contact my administrative secretary or whatever. Uh, there's no well, barriers to access. So thank you again. And uh, on behalf of our whole Naga Notes family across the globe and our Zephyr Wellness family here in northern Nevada, 
Uh, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.